0: Good morning, church. How does God move through history? It's an important question for a lot of reasons. One, as we move through history, it could be just preparation for us to be able to more wisely respond in the situation, because if we know how he's moved before, we can have some idea of what he would do next. Or maybe, just hypothetically, things have been a little weird recently. Last year was a little odd. Again, purely hypothetical. This year is shaping up to be maybe a little odd also. If we know how he's moved before, we can be more prepared for how to respond as we as we continues to move. So, pray with me first and then we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you for your, just your um, presence here this morning, for your healing presence here. Thank you for how you've continue you're already moving here this morning i pray that you'll just continue that move as we we go dive in today and i pray that you will just prepare us all to hear what you would have to say and that i would speak only what you want me to say in your name amen amen good place to start if you want to study how god moves through history is genesis 1 right start right at the beginning just go dive in So, I think it would be really easy to acknowledge the fact that God could have created the world in a different way than he did. He could have taken five days. He could have done it in one, but he did it in seven. So, what should we learn from that? So, imagine with me, if you will, that we are at the beginning and we're there with the Spirit hovering over the waters, and it's dark. And God speaks, Let there be light. this is amazing. It's light. Oh, wow. This is incredible. And then a little time passes. Hey, hey God, have you noticed It's. I think it's getting darker. No, I'm confident about this. It's getting darker. I thought you just made it light. What are you doing? And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then it comes again, and there's light. Ah, we're back to where we began. Yes, all right, we got light again. Fantastic, but God doesn't stop there. He separates the waters. There's waters above, and there's waters below. Oh, that was pretty interesting. Wow. Hey, God, it's getting dark again. I thought you'd fix this the first time. It's getting dark again. No, it's really dark. And then it's light again, right? Because there was evening and there was morning the second day. And we're back. All right, all right. It's light. The waters are separated. Fantastic. We're back to where we began. Good, 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 good. But he doesn't stop there. He separates the land from the waters. He brings out trees and plants. So he, wow, that's amazing. And then it starts to get dark again. God. Can you not get it together? Why does it keep getting dark again? And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And the fourth day comes. And it's light again. And then he starts to do things, right? There's more stuff happening. Day five, day six, he just continues forward. But there's still the steady progression of darkness and then light. And he continues to bring things out. So just from that alone, we can just stop and recognize the fact that God doesn't always move the way we want him to or the way we expect him to. And two, God is always making progress. He never just gets us back to where he was before. He's moving us forward at all times. And you can see that in his progression of the, of the creation, right? He never just goes, ah, we got the land back and it's light. Awesome. no. He brings out even more potential every single day as he moves forward. And so we can already, just in the first chapter, already recognize that there is a way that God moves through history, and that it's important for us to recognize that fact. So before we go farther and look at the uh, overall flow of, the, of a lot of scripture, I want to talk to you about an idea, which is summarizing Bible stories and why that's valuable, So, for instance, if I were to tell you there was a father, and he has two sons, there's a prophecy spoken over one of them. The father chooses wrongly, so the son has to flee. He goes to a place, and he meets someone who tries to take advantage of him. God intervenes in the situation. From that person who tried to take advantage of him, the son gets a wife who would I be telling you about? Jacob, right? But what if I were to tell you that's actually not the story I'm describing to you? That is the story, but that's also not the story. Saul adopts David. This may not come as a surprise to you, but it might, which is that Saul adopts David from a variety of reasons, and you can see that in the way that Jonathan responds to David. You can see that in the fact that Saul calls him my son, a variety of different times. He gives him armor, and he gives him a wife, a daughter, his daughter. And so he is, becomes Saul's son. Now, Saul has two sons. He has Jonathan, and he has David. He chooses the wrong son. And so David has to flee. He flees. And who does he meet, of all people? He meets Nabal, which is just Laban spelled backwards. Now, there's multiple reasons for that, but it literally is, spelled backwards, Laban. What does Nabal do? He tries to take advantage of him. And out of that, God intervenes, and he gets a wife, a pretty amazing wife, if you read the description of Abigail. And so from that, the biblical authors are showing us how to already read scripture and to recognize greater and greater insight, which is David faithfully does what Jacob chooses not to. Jacob seizes things he shouldn't have, and David doesn't. So for instance, let's summarize another portion. There's a father, and he doesn't see well, and his son is faced with a choice to take things he know he should, that he's promised, or not to take them. Jacob chooses to ch- take advantage of his blind father and steal the blessing. David has Saul, who can't see very clearly, come into a cave. He comes into a cave, and it's dark, And he's faced with a choice. And people are sitting there saying, you should do it, you should do it. But he doesn't. And so again, we get to see, as we summarize stories, how we can get greater insight as we contrast different people. Does that make sense? Okay. So what if we were to do that with the overall structure of the Old Testament? Before we do that, I want to review something about last week, which is, so we talked about how we move as individuals from priest. To king, to prophet. So we move from obedience to wise rule to even a greater maturing to where we've actually been brought into God's counsel and we both speak for God and we speak with God. And so we have this responsibility of mediation and even bringing transformation into the world and into people's lives. In the same way, geographically, a priest has responsibility over a very small area. Kings have a larger area, and prophets are just everywhere. So that is how God moves individually in our lives. But what if I were to suggest to you that is not just individually, but that is corporately how God moves through history? So let me show you. I'm gonna loop through this a couple different times, and we'll sort of get more and more depth out of it. I've included a nice pretty chart or table for those who like tables. This is how I think, but that's not how I will present it. So one, overview of Genesis. Just let's look at like the overall view of Genesis, right? We looked at last week how God sets up Adam as the priest. He's put in a temple, and he's given the exact same wording that the priests are told to do. So Adam is set up as priest. Now, he sins. There's a progression of greater and greater sin, and God brings a period to an end. We come through that period that God ended, And we get Noah. Now, Noah's not set up as a priest. He's set up as a king. And we can know that for a variety of reasons. Um, One of them is just to look at Genesis 9, verse 6. So we read the fact that God gives Adam a covenant. But then we also recognize the fact that Noah gets a covenant. And in most cases, we notice the fact that they're very similar. But there are some differences. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Now that's part of the covenant that Noah's given. So he's given a greater responsibility of judgment than even Adam was. So he's been given now this extra level of authority. And that level sounds a lot like a king. Kings make decisions over people's lives. Priests make decisions over animals' lives. So already he's moved progressively like we've talked about. He sets up a garden. He sets up, um, you know, he, he makes judgment over his son just in the same way that God made judgment in the beginning. So we see Noah set up as, as king. Now king, here he is. He's doing some things. Sin gets pretty bad. At the end of the story, we get to babble, and God brings the period to an end. From that, we move forward, and who do we meet? Abraham. Abraham is brought in. And he's the first person, as we noticed last week, that is called prophet. Here he is. He's now prophet, and he is set up and he is going places, right? He's not staying in one place. He's traveling here, he's traveling there. He's bringing converts in a greater way than anyone else we've seen up to this point. God brings that period to an end. And we see a new one. Here we see Moses. Moses comes and brings the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt. And he sets Aaron up as priest. So already, now we've moved a little bit because now instead of God setting up someone, now it's Aaron who's being set up as priest by Moses. Things go on. We get, you know, over time and even through Judges, God brings an end and we get to a new phase and we get to the kings. Now Samuel sets up Saul as the first king and that period goes on. And it starts to sound very similar. You get ruling, maybe some questionable things. And then he brings it to an end. Elijah comes forward, and he establishes Elisha as the new prophet. And as you start to progress in that period, it starts to sound a lot like Genesis. You get a lot of people going here and there, bringing converts all over the place. Okay, with me? That's a really short summary. Now we'll loop back through. Okay, so I want to show you something about how those periods end, because I think it's really important to understand some of that. So the first period's pretty obvious to us, right? The flood happens, a period ends. The second one, Babel. There's something pretty significant about Babel happening, right? God is no longer in the same way have a relationship with all of humanity. He's pulled one person out. So there's a significant, distinct difference between what happened before and what's happening after between where Abraham is, right? There's a very distinct difference. We go forward. We get Joseph, and then we come into Exodus, and we get Moses. Now, we lose this in Hebrew, or in English, but in Hebrew, it's really interesting. There's only two stories in the entire Bible that we get the word ark. And no, I don't mean ark of the covenant, but the actual, like, literal boat thing is only used in two stories. It's used in the story of Noah, and it's used in the story of Moses. The thing that Moses is put in to float down the river is literally the same word that's used in the story of Noah. Now we read that and go, it sounds like a small little thing. So then we should stop and go, well then if that's not the point, what's the point? Which is that the ark brought an end to a period, right? And so we're waiting and we're waiting and we get to Moses and there's a period of time and then he gets to Egypt and Boy, do things go crazy, right? We get the 10 plagues. And the 10 plagues are bringing an end to a period, right? You get judgment on the water and then on the land and then moving upwards into the skies. And then everything's dark, back to Genesis 1 again. And then there's even judgment on the firstborn, just like a reverse of what's happening in Genesis 1. And so we get to see this decreation event where God is bringing a period to an end in Moses, and then they move out. And God brings forward into a priest, Aaron. And he sets him up. And we read in Deuteronomy 30, how Moses sort of summarizes this, right? Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 through 16. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and statues and its rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Farther down, again, it says, I place before you a blessing and a curse. And it reminds us, this new phase that we're coming into, this new priestly phase, sounds a lot in many ways like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, right? And so then we're faced with a choice. The people choose not to obey, and they do everything from setting up a calf as an idol and a variety of other things. And so again, the sin continues forward forward, And we get to the end of Judges. Now, we go into Samuel, and Samuel brings the period to an end. And how do we know this? Well, if we read it, we lose the ark. Now, for us, I feel like the ark isn't maybe as obvious or as significant. I'm trying to imagine something that was, like, as significant. It'd be like waking up and finding, like, someone stole the Statue of Liberty. Maybe? I don't know. Or the White House? Stole the White House? I don't know. But something. Like, they, they, you know, like, you wake up one day, and it's just gone. And it's like, it's the icon that defines our society. The Ark is gone. They've lost it. And the, the priests are killed. And it's gone. And then you get to the point where it starts to tell the story about the Philistines, right? And the Philistines have it in their cities. And God brings judgment after judgment. And those start to sound a lot like Egypt. They get plagues (laughs) and it gets so bad that they're like, please go take it back. And they give them gold, which sounds a lot like Egypt. And so he brings a period to an end. But when he gets to that end of that period, he doesn't give them another priest. We've now moved into another phase. God's brought them forward. And now we get a king. Now Saul leaves something to be desired. And I'm not saying at any point that any of these people don't leave something to be desired, right? Always the promise is there will be one who doesn't leave something to be desired. But he, you, we no, start to notice the fact that God is moving things forward in a certain progression. Now, we get to, um, oh, one more point I would say about the end of, of uh, the period with Samuel. Samuel, we lose this ark, there's plagues, there's blessing. We get the two, two sons of Eli, and they're killed, and Eli is blind. And that's important to remember as we move forward. So we go to the next phase, right? So now Samuel has set up Saul as king. And we keep going forward. And from there, we get to Elijah. Now, Elijah is really interesting because he is set up in the way his story is described. If we summarize it, like we've talked about. If we summarize it, you get a man who is in the land. He is sent out of the land. He meets a woman. Sounds a lot like Moses. He does something with a child. He comes back into the land, and he faces off against supernatural evil in some form. Sam, or you know, Moses faces off against the gods of Egypt. Elijah faces off against Baal, and in both cases, God demonstrates that He has the true authority, the true power. He defeats him, and what is, then happens next? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Elijah goes up on Mount Horeb. And where does he, when he does that, he gets a new, new things that come, that are being shown to him. In this case, what's really interesting about Elijah is he's told three things. One, he's to set up Elisha as prophet. Two, he's supposed to set up, uh, darn it, I'm trying to remember his name, um, as king of Israel. And the final one, he's supposed to set up Hezael as king of Syria. Now, that's really interesting, because up to this point, no prophet has been told to set up outside kings outside of Judah or Israel, and all of a sudden, he is. So God is now lo- no longer um, just interacting with Israel in the same way. Now he's reaching out in the same way that we saw Abraham reaching out beyond initial area, but going farther out. Now we get Elijah doing the same thing. God is moving out. He's expanding his reach. And so we get to stor- stories of Elisha, and then we get to see, you know, the little um, slave girl who brings Naaman. And we get to see all of these stories all of a sudden that start to sound like stories of Jacob and Joseph as we're moving forward. And God continues to progress and bring greater, greater power. The end of that period comes when Babylon comes and destroys the temple, similar to, say, what we noticed with losing the the Ark of the Covenant. They destroy the city, and King Zedekiah is blind, and his sons are killed, sounding very similar to another period. I'll tell you this. the The biblical authors are sneaky, but they're also not as sneaky as we sometimes give them credit for. It's there. We just have to stop and pause for a minute and sort of notice. So here we are. We've moved forward. Priest, king, prophet in phases in Genesis. Priest, king, prophet phases in Old Testament history. And each of those, he's moved forward. He's brought greater authority, greater responsibility. So the first period, we're responsible as corporately to be obedient and to follow where God's guiding. He gives greater revelation from the first one is one rule till the second one where he gives a new phase. There's a lot more rules as we've talked about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's a lot more rules and there's greater revelation of who God is in those. And so it's not that we're just getting a repeat. There's an expansion. In the same way, God sets up the first priest, Adam, but Moses sets up the new priest, Aaron, So, as Steve talked about just before Christmas, God moves through his image bearers, and that's amazing. That's incredible, and he continues to move more and more and more through us, in spite of ourselves, in most cases. Just incredible how he continues to move forward. We get to the kingly phase, and we get to see an establishment of an area, and somewhat of a wise rule in the f- phase with Noah, at the end of it, we even get a temple. It's not a good temple, but that's what the Tower of Babel is, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, f- a false mountain, is what those are. In all cultures of that period type of thing, when you're bu- building tall po- uh, towers, it is to mimic a mountain, which is where the gods are. If you read things like Greek mythology or others, you'll recognize that that is where they see the gods as. And so when you're building something like a Tower of Babel, it's not just a, um, we're trying to see whether we can reach the heavens in the sense of like at some point it'll be tall enough we fall into, but that it is something about that is where you meet the gods is on high, high, tall places. And so that's what the Tower of Babel is. So in that phase, you get a false temple You move forward to the kingly phase and Saul and David and Solomon and you get a new temple and it's a good temple and it's established and it's amazing. And so we get to see that, that great growth there. You move to the next phase and we get the prophet. Abraham's sent here. He's sent there. He's somewhat faithful at times, somewhat not. You get Jacob, similar type of thing. You get to Joseph. Now he's, He's taken out of his homeland and put under an oppressive empire. He's faced a lot of different tests. And at some point, he ends up pretty much ruling the kingdom. It sounds really similar to Daniel. Daniel is taken out of his homeland. He faced a lot of tests. He interprets dreams similar to Joseph. And by the end of it, he's set up basically ruling no longer a kingdom but an empire. He's, again, you know, we're moving forward in history. God is not just getting back to a spot. He's moving us always forward, always to greater and greater things. And so we're seeing that, and we get to see that in so many different stories as we're looking at it. Even the story of like Esther, right? She's, again, faithful, you know, after a time. And so in the same way, she gets set up ruling in a similar type of way. And so always God is moving things forward. Bringing us to another another thing, uh, Zadok. There's a slide. One more down. There you go. There we go. Okay. So um, similar to that. So there's periods, right? So we had the first period in the Old Testament, or in, in the um, period from Exodus on. We get the tap Okay. So um, this the way this works is the bottom left-hand square is the American football field in comparison to the tabernacle and the temple. So you can see, just just so it gives you a a frame of reference, we know roughly what a football field looks like. So tabernacle is the first phase, right? It's the priestly phase, and it's small. You get to the kingly phase, and it's bigger. It's grown. But if you give me the next slide, Zadok, this is Ezekiel's temple over here on the left-hand side. So the vision, right? So like God has moved us farther forward to greater and greater things. He's, we started small, we got a little bigger, and then boom! Like that's that's a lot bigger than the other ones. So the promise of movement is never stopping, always growing. God's rolling us forward. He's moving us forward. To put it um, the way Michael Bull does, um, God moves us. God's moves are most certainly repeated cycles. But the Bible gives us a more interesting philosophy than that held by pagan thinkers, who never expected anything to improve. Biblical history is not a spinning top, but a wheel. It is turning for the sake of going somewhere. So the work of God and man is not merely there and back again. Bible history is man on a mission. God is moving us forward at all times. Even when things get dark or things look scary or strange, it doesn't mean he's lost control. And it doesn't mean that at some point he's going to get us back to the good old days. That's not where he's going. He's always moving us forward. He's always moving us into greater and greater things. His church is going to cover the entire earth, and that's not going to not stop. And we just continue to move that direction. And so we see that, and we could even continue to look beyond sort of the judgment and fall of Babylon and see how that phase ends, and we get to see that continued progression of priest king, prophet, even coming into Jesus' life. It's one of the reasons that we looked at how in Matthew 16, Jesus, just like Moses and Elijah, is compared with them, which is he's sent, he starts in the land. He goes out of the land, he meets a woman. He comes back into the land. He battles against supernatural forces, and then he goes up on a mountain where he meets Moses and Elijah. He's bringing another period to an end in the same way that the others have before, and he's continuing to move things forward. Things never stop. Things are always moving forward. So four points that I would make out of just sort of noticing what's going on here. One, God is maturing his people in the same type of way that he is, uh, his corporate people, in the same way that he's maturing his people individually. So just like you and I are called to obedience, wise rule, and then to go into mediation and transformation as a prophet, in the same way, corporately, God moves in that way. Two, God is working through his image bearers as he moves through history. And it's just, you know, in some ways, you just got to stop and be amazed that God chooses to work through us, to move through us in greater and greater ways every single time, which is just mind-blowing, really. Three, we see God bringing periods to end, but that doesn't mean he's lost control or that our hope is to get back to what became before as God brings periods to end, that's okay. It doesn't mean it's over, and it doesn't mean it's done, or somehow things are, you know, like he doesn't know where he's going. He's always moving us forward. He's always moving forward. Four, everyone may corporately be at one phase and individually at different phases. And what I mean by that is, for instance, so the last or the middle phase, right, the kingly phase with Saul and David, what I'm not saying is that everyone was a king at that point, we still get priests, we still get prophets so just because say corporately we were at a kingly phase doesn't mean that there aren't priests and prophets but that doesn't that that does mean that we should be recognizing that as corporately what is God calling us to right now does that make sense? so with that being said, let's just sort of try to apply this to the way that the God if God works through that priest king prophet phase let's think about that from the standpoint of Just broadly, the whole church. What phase is God bringing the whole church into right now? In one way, I would suggest it's a priestly phase. There's been such a loss in what truth is, what obedience is, that corporately, he's calling his global church to obedience. Does that make sense? Now there could be more discussion over that idea but that's just generally like one ways we could think about how to apply this to our lives right there's multiple ways but this is one of them what is god bringing his local church to in our local church area there is a very large move i feel like in in unity in working together now that's not obedience that requires wise rule that requires a lot of wisdom to be able to work together to be able to with brothers to to work in unity, that requires a lot of wise rule. And so maybe corporately at a local region, we are being called to be kingly. And what does that wisdom look like? What about Christian outreach itself? What does that mean for us? I would suggest that there's a lot of words that we're hearing about discipleship, evangelism, to go out, to grow, that that would suggest to me that if we recognize this that corporately for just our church we are being called into a prophetic phase that we are being moved into something greater than what's come before and that responsibility is still there now notice as the global church we're still called to be priestly if that's what god's moving us into corporately as a local church or as the, the church locally we're still called into a kingly phase and also individually here as this church we're being called prophetically Because that's how God works. He works at all levels of priest, king, prophet. If he moves in our lives, priest, king, prophet, and he moves in Israel's life corporately as priest, king, prophet, then we'd expect that every phase in between, we'd find the same thing. Which is why he's maturing us individually as the temple and corporately as the temple. So at any point, he's moving us forward, maturing us, bringing us into that. So I've thrown a lot at you. Before I close, I want to just open it up for questions, thoughts, ideas. Okay. Yeah? Um, Ezekiel's temple, is that the same one that Nehemiah helped rebuild? No. Did uh, God give Ezekiel specific instructions to make it that big, or did did they just decide the world? Yeah, very specific instructions about what size it is. Yeah, so in like Nehemiah, you're actually moving into the next phase. So the Babylonian exile brings the period of Ezekiel's era, you know, sort of that prophetic age to an end. And then we move into another phase where, in that case, you get to see Zechariah and his vision. He's setting up a new priest. In this case, it's Joshua. He's set up as a new priest. So he's moving in to another phase. But again, that phase, you can see it in Acts, right? We go into Acts, and all of a sudden, whenever the apostles are going places, They're running into synagogues everywhere, all over the place. Now, if you stop and just go, well, wait a second, God pushed his people out and said, I want you to go out to the nations, then we shouldn't be surprised Then we get to Acts that we see them everywhere. Because that's what he's moving. You know, he's moving, you know, again, like, does that, moving us forward, always, always moving us forward. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, One more question. Hmm? Um, I think there's a bunch of history. was it just the the city? Right. Yeah. There's discussion over how many different temples happen between, sort of like, the, in that, that, um, that period between, sort of like, when the Bible officially like stops talking um, and we pick up in, in Jesus. And so there's a lot of really interesting, sort of, history in there. There's at least one temple there, potentially more. But, you know, they are brought to, you know, they are, um, it is established and then brought to an end. Anything else? Okay. So, what we can see here is, is that God continues to be faithful to move forward in our lives. And so to re-quote Michael Bull, God moves God's moves are not most certainly repeated cycles, but the Bible gives us a more interesting philosophy than that held by pagan thinkers who never expected anything to improve. Biblical history is not a spinning top, but a wheel. It is turning for the sake of going somewhere, so the work of God and man is not merely there and back again. Bible history is man on a mission. Amen.